in Ephesians, the fourth chapter. In Ephesians chapter 4, in verse number 4, the apostle of God writes these words. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Why do we talk about it so much? Why do we make such a big deal about it? Why do we find a way to mention it in nearly every single sermon? That's what a lot of people want to know. That's what a lot of religious folks want to know when it comes to members of the Church of Christ and the topic of baptism. In fact, maybe you've been asked that question before. Maybe you've been asked by your friends, why do members of the Church of Christ make such a big deal about baptism? If you've been asked that question before, then I hope you've let people know, know this. I hope you've let them know that the reason why we as members of the Church of Christ make such a big deal about baptism is not because we don't view the other parts of God's plan of salvation as equally important. Instead, it is because out of all of the parts of God's plan of salvation, baptism is the part that is often the most misunderstood. It is the part that is often viewed as not really that important. It is the part of the plan where most of the false teaching is given. That's why we make such a big deal about baptism. So let me just ask you this morning, how much do you know about baptism? How much do you really know about baptism? Someone says, well, Sean, I know everything about baptism. Someone says, I've been a Christian for 30, 40, 50 years. The last thing I need this morning is another sermon about baptism. I don't need to hear about baptism. I got that topic mastered. I know that topic like the back of my hand. Maybe somebody is thinking that this morning or maybe somebody else is thinking, well, you know, I like baptism. I respect baptism, but I really don't view it as essential. I really don't view it as important. I really don't view it as necessary for a person to gain salvation. Or maybe somebody else is thinking, well, Sean, I'm new to this whole religion thing. I'm new to this whole going to church thing and reading my Bible thing. And, and so I really don't know much about this issue. I really don't know much of what the Bible says about baptism. How much do you really know? About baptism, do you by any chance know that there are many different kinds of baptisms that are mentioned in the Bible? If so, do you by any chance know how many different kinds of baptisms are mentioned in the Bible? Do you by any chance know where these different baptisms are mentioned in the Bible? Could you be able to effectively tell people what makes all of these different baptisms so different from one another and which one God wants to be administered today? I ask you that last question because according to what we read in Ephesians 4 and verse number 5, my friends, there's only one baptism. There's only one baptism just like there's only one Lord 
and one God and Father, and one Holy Spirit, and one faith, and one hope. Just like there's only one of those things, there's also only one baptism. The question is, which one is it? The question is, out of all the different baptisms that are mentioned in the Bible, which one is the one baptism? Which one is the one baptism that God wants to be administered today according to what Paul says in Ephesians 4 and verse 5? Well, as we try to find the answer to that question, I think we need to spend some time in the Gospel of Matthew. Particularly, we need to go to Matthew chapter 3. We need to park ourselves at Matthew 3 this morning. Go in your Bible to Matthew 3. Go to Matthew chapter 3. In Matthew 3, we read about a bunch of different kinds of baptisms. And in Matthew 3 and verse 1, the Bible says, Now in those days, John the Baptist, he came preaching, in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. When they saw, when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Notice how here in these verses... We're introduced to one of the great prophets of the Bible. Here in these verses, we're introduced to John the Baptist. We're introduced to John the Baptizer. Here we find John preaching the word of God in the Judean wilderness. He's clothed in camel's hair. Picture that in your mind. He has a weird diet. I mean, many of you think that I have a weird diet, but I eat hamburgers and pizza every day of the week over eating locusts. John eats locusts. Well, wow, honey, he's got a weird diet. And he's baptizing people. He's baptizing people in the Jordan River. The Bible says as people come out to him confessing their sins, he tells them to repent. He tells them to turn away from their sins. He tells them to bear fruits of repentance. That is, they need to demonstrate their repentance. And then he baptizes the people. He immerses the people in water for the forgiveness of sins. Mark makes that very clear in Mark chapter 1 and verse 4. In Mark 1 and verse 4, we learn that John's baptism was a baptism for the remission of sins. It was for the forgiveness of sins. It was authorized by God. It had heaven's approval. God wanted people to listen to John and submit to his baptism. The question is, is it the one baptism of Ephesians 4 and verse 5? Is it the one baptism that Paul is talking about there in that, in that verse? I submit to you that it is not. 
it is not the one baptism of that text. And there are a couple of reasons why we can be certain of that. First, we can be certain of that because John's baptism was very limited in audience. It was limited in audience. When we say it was limited in audience, we mean that it was limited to a specific group of people. When you go back to Matthew chapter 3, you see clearly that John's baptism was limited to the Jews. It was limited to the physical descendants of Abraham. It was not for everybody. It was not for all nations. That's very different than the baptism that Paul is talking about in Ephesians 4. You see, when we also study what Paul says in Ephesians 2, we see that when it came to this church in Ephesus, when it came to this local congregation in the city of Ephesus, that church wasn't just made up of Jews, but guess what? It was also made up of Gentiles. It was also made up of people from the other nations. Gentiles had also experienced the one baptism of Ephesians 4 and verse 5. And so John's baptism was limited in audience, but not only was it limited in audience. Secondly, we need to understand that it was also limited in nature. By limited in nature, we mean that John's baptism was performed to only prepare people to receive the Messiah when he came onto the scene. It was performed to prepare the way for the Messiah. It would not help men gain access into the kingdom of God. It would not help men gain access into the church of our Lord. In fact, we need to understand that by the time we get to Matthew 3, there is no church of our Lord. It's not in existence yet. There is no kingdom of God. John says the kingdom of God is at hand. There isn't even a, even a new covenant that has been established and instituted by the blood of Jesus. Go to Acts chapter 19. Remember, Paul told the church at Ephesus that there's only one baptism. There's only one baptism by the time Paul wrote that letter. But in Acts 19, we read about when Paul first started preaching the gospel in Ephesus. And in Acts 19 and verse 1, it says it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them that you received the Holy Spirit baptism when you believed or the Holy Spirit, I'm sorry, when you believed. And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said into John's baptism. They had experienced John's baptism. Paul said John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in him and the Messiah who was coming after him. That is in Jesus. When they heard this, they were what? Baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, there's a lot we could say about that text this morning. But due to time, let's just mention this. Let's just point out. Let's point out how by the time Paul starts preaching the gospel. In the city of Ephesus, John's baptism was clearly no longer in force. John's baptism was clearly no longer valid. Otherwise, why in the world is Paul telling these men that they need to get baptized again? John's baptism can't be the one baptism of Ephesians 4 and verse number 5. Clearly, that baptism wasn't in force anymore by the time Paul got to Ephesus. But let's move on back to Matthew 3. 
and go to verse 11. Because in verse 11, we find two other baptisms mentioned there, and that's the baptism of fire and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, John goes on to say to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he, the Messiah, who is coming after me, is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He, the Messiah, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Notice how here we find two of the baptisms in this chapter, don't we? We find the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of fire. Let me ask you a question. Do you want that baptism? You want the baptism of fire? Someone says, I want that baptism. Someone says, I want to be baptized with fire by the Messiah. I pray for that kind of baptism. My friend, I hope you don't pray for that baptism. You don't want that baptism. That baptism John talking about there, that's not a good thing. That's not something you want to experience. That's not something you want to pray for. That's not something you want in any way, shape, or form. You know why? Because that's the baptism of judgment. That is a figurative baptism against a wicked and rebellious generation of Jews in the time of Jesus. John makes that very clear here in Matthew chapter 3. Go back and look at verse number 7. Look at verse 7. Let's do some good Bible study here. In verse 7, notice how there, as the Pharisees and the Sadducees came out to be baptized by John, John called them what? He called them a brood of vipers. He called them a bunch of snakes. He told them that if they did not bear fruits of repentance, they would experience the wrath of God. They would be punished by God. They would receive Divine judgment from on high. That's what John says in verse 7. Now look at verse 10. In verse 10, John emphasizes that point further by saying that the axe, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. He says every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. My dear friends, that is not a good thing. Whenever something is cut down by God and thrown into the fire, that is never a good thing. Now look at verse 12. In verse 12, concerning the Messiah, he says his winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will thoroughly clear his, his threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Again, that's not good. That's not good to read about God burning up something with unquenchable fire. If you don't believe me when I say that, just go home today and just do some reading from the Old Testament. Go read the prophets. Go read the book of Isaiah. Throughout the prophets, we learn that any time God burns up something with fire, especially unquenchable fire, that's always a reference to judgment. That's always a reference to God punishing an evil and rebellious generation of people. You see, with this language, John is trying to get these Jews to understand that they could not depend on their physical ties to Abraham to automatically leading them to finding favor with God. They could not depend on their physical ties to Abraham to automatically make it so that they would receive God's favor and, and mercy and grace. No, unless they repented and started living right, 
they were going to receive the baptism of fire. They were going to receive judgment. Judgment from the Messiah. The one baptism of Ephesians 4 and verse 5 is certainly not the baptism of fire. And it's also not the Holy Spirit baptism. You see, contrary to what some of our charismatic religious friends suggest, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's also not the one baptism of Ephesians 4 and verse 5. In fact, the Holy Spirit himself, through his revelation, which is the scripture, makes it very clear that his baptism wasn't going to be for everybody. It wasn't even going to be administered by every disciple. Look at Acts chapter 2. Go to Acts chapter 2. Please, Acts 2. Remember, John promised that the Messiah was going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And in Acts 2 and verse 4, before Jesus went to heaven to be with his father, it says, gathering them together, he commanded them, his apostles, not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the father had promised, which he said, you heard from me. Verse 5, for John baptized with water. There's Matthew 3. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You apostles will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now look at verse 8. Verse 8, but you, you apostles, when you receive power, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. He's going to come upon you. And you're going to be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even the remotest part of the, of the earth. That's the outline for the book of Acts. Jesus says that when the Holy Spirit's power comes upon you, you're going to be ready to go and do the work. Now look at chapter 2 and verse 1. Jesus has made the promise. Go back to Jerusalem and you wait. Chapter 2 and verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them. The them there, when you follow it back to chapter 1, is the apostles. Not every disciple there in the upper room. The apostles. It says, there appeared to them tongues as a fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them, each one of the apostles. And they, the apostles, were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them the utterance. I want you to notice how here we read about the occasion when the promise of John and the promise of Jesus concerning Holy Spirit baptism comes to pass. Notice how as the disciples are gathered in an upper room in the city of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, they, the apostles, were figuratively and miraculously immersed with power from on high. They were miraculously filled with the Holy Spirit. This experience gave them the miraculous and supernatural ability to begin speaking in tongues, that is, foreign languages that they had never formerly learned. According to verse number 21, this outpouring or this baptism of the Holy Spirit would serve as a sign from heaven that because of the sacrificial work of Jesus, now whoever called on the name of the Lord would be saved. It would serve as a sign that the full gift of salvation was now available to all mankind. It would also give the apostles miraculous power they needed to go out and confirm the preaching of the gospel. The Holy Spirit baptism serves as a sign, a sign 
that salvation was available to mankind because of the redemptive work of the Messiah. It is not the one baptism of Ephesians 4 and verse number 5. But go back to Matthew again. Go back to Matthew because we're not done. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 says, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I, I have need to be baptized by you. And, and do you come to me? John knew that, who Jesus was and what that was about. But Jesus' answering said to him, Permitted at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, descending as a dove and lightning on him, and behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Notice how here in this chapter we find a fourth baptism, a fourth baptism that is performed, and it is the baptism of Jesus. The baptism of Jesus. Notice how before beginning his three-year ministry, the scripture says that Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River. I got to tell you that that's very interesting because remember the purpose of John's baptism. Remember Mark 1 and verse 4 says that John baptized people for the remission of sins. He baptized people for the forgiveness of sins, and yet Jesus has no sins. Jesus has no transgressions. Jesus has never committed one sin in his entire life. And so why is he being baptized? Well, thankfully, we don't have to guess about that. We don't have to wander and ponder for very long because the Bible clearly tells us. Matthew 3 verse 15 says that Jesus was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. That's pretty clear. When you put that what John tells us in John 1 and verses 29 through 33, there John tells us that another reason why Jesus was baptized was to manifest himself to Israel. It was to give John the baptizer the confirmation he needed to know or that he needed to be able to tell other people that he is the Lamb of God who came into the world to take away the sins of the world. That is exactly why the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove and why God speaks directly out of heaven, saying, this is my son and whom I well please. That took place at the baptism of Jesus. And so because Jesus was sinless and because we're sinners, we can be absolutely certain that the one baptism of Ephesians 4 and verse 5 is not that baptism. It's not John's baptism. It's not the baptism of fire. It's not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's not even the baptism of Jesus. Instead, the one baptism of Ephesians 4 and verse 5 is the baptism in water in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. It is the baptism in water in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. You see, unlike all these other baptisms we've talked about this morning, this baptism, the one baptism, it's for those who believe the gospel. It's for those who believe what the gospel says about Jesus. It's for those who believe he's the son of God and the Lord and the Christ and that he died on the cross for their sins and he was raised from the dead. In Mark 16 and verse 16, Jesus says, he who believes 
the gospel and is baptized will be saved. Notice how belief in the gospel, belief in Jesus is a prerequisite for Bible baptism. The one baptism is for those who believe the gospel and is also for those who are willing to repent and confess their sins beforehand. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 37, we find someone confessing Jesus as Lord. He confesses Jesus as Lord. Before this man from Ethiopia was immersed in water for forgiveness of sins, he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Acts 2.38. I want you to look at that, please. Look at that. Acts 2.38. What does it say? I know we've read it a lot of times. We're going to read these scriptures sometimes like we're reading them for the first time again. Before those people were baptized in verse number 41, remember they asked the question in verse 37. They said, what shall we do to be saved? After they heard Peter's preaching. And Peter told them to repent. And he told them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And they will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promised gift of salvation. Notice how unlike, unlike what we find with Jesus, who was sinless when he was baptized. The one baptism of Ephesians 4 and verse 5 is for sinners. It's not for the saved, it's for sinners. It's for people who need to repent of sins and turn away from sins. It is for those who are willing to repent and confess Jesus as Lord. And it is also a baptism that can be administered by disciples. It can be administered by people like me and you. Isn't that what Jesus said going back to Matthew 28? Matthew 28 and verse number 19. Jesus told his people before he went to heaven, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. How do we do that? By baptizing them. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, my disciples, always, even to the end of the age. Unlike the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which can only be administered by Jesus, this baptism, the one baptism, will be administered by disciples. It will be administered by Christians until the end of the world, until the end of the gospel age. And then the one baptism is for remission of sins. It is for forgiveness of sins. Acts 2.38 again, what did it say? Peter told those people, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness or remission of sins. Remember, the Holy Spirit baptism was merely a sign that salvation was available to mankind. It was merely a sign that whoever called upon the name of the Lord would be saved. It was not for the remission of sins for mankind. It did not give men access to the precious and sinless blood of Jesus. It did not do what Paul said in Romans 6 and verse 4, when Paul says that when sinners are baptized, they're buried with Christ and they're raised to walk in new spiritual life. Look at Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. Remember I told you we find Holy Spirit baptism taking place in Acts 2 on the apostles? Remember I said that? Well, in Acts 10, we read about it taking place again. It takes place two times in the Bible, Acts 2 and Acts 10. First time on the apostles who were Jews. Second time on the household of Cornelius, a Gentile household. 
Cornelius also was baptized with the Holy Spirit, and he and his household also started speaking in foreign languages miraculously that they had never formally learned. And in verse 47, Peter knew exactly what that meant. In verse 47, he says, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Question. If Holy Spirit baptism is the one baptism, if that's the baptism that saves, then why in the world after, why in the world after Cornelius and his household received that baptism, did Peter say, we can't refuse water to these people? We can't refuse water baptism to these people. Why did he order them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ? Well, the answer is simple, because Peter knew that that baptism, the baptism in water in the name of Jesus Christ, that's the one for remission of sins. That's the one that gives men access to the blood of Jesus Christ. And then the one baptism, or through the one baptism, we're saved by the grace of God, and we're made disciples. Remember, Jesus said, Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of the nations. How do we make disciples? baptizing people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 3.21. 1 Peter 3.21, after Peter talks about how water was involved in the salvation of Noah and his family, he says in verse number 21, corresponding to that, just like that, baptism, that is, that is baptism in water, it now saves you. Contrary to what a lot of religious folks say today. The Bible says that baptism in water saves us. It is directly tied to our salvation. Through the one baptism, we are saved, the Bible says. And we're made disciples. And through the one baptism, the saved are added to the one church. Not some man-made denomination. No, the one church that Jesus established. Acts 2.47. After those 3,000 people on Pentecost were baptized for the remission of their sins, the Bible says the Lord was adding to the church daily those who were being saved. That's very different than what John's baptism was providing, right? While John's baptism was for the remission of sins, as we stated earlier, through it, people were not added to the Lord's church because there was no Lord's church in existence yet when John was preaching. There was no kingdom of God. There wasn't even a new covenant that had yet to be instituted. Through the one baptism, the saved are added to the one church, the one body. And through the one baptism, we have our sins washed away and we call upon the name of the Lord. Acts 22 and verse 16, Saul of Tarsus was told, why are you waiting? Get up and be baptized, washing away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Through baptism, we have our sins washed away, not by the water, but by the blood of Jesus. And through the one baptism, we call upon the name of the Lord. Contrary to what we may be hearing today, there is no sinner's prayer found in the Bible. You will never find people calling upon the name of the Lord by saying a prayer. Instead, in the Bible, people called upon the name of the Lord like Saul of Tarsus did by being baptized. 
baptism in water in the name of Jesus for remission of sins. That's the one baptism. By 63 AD, that's the baptism that was in force. By the time Paul wrote that letter to the church at Ephesus, that was the baptism that God ordained to be administered until the end of the world. And for those who may be wondering, well, why in the world do we need to hear this sermon? Why in the world would a preacher preach a lesson like this in a room of people that have been Christians for such a long time? For those who may be thinking that, let me give you a couple of things to think about. First, let me say that a topic like this needs to be addressed from time to time because while this room is full of people who are seasoned Christians, seasoned Christians, are usually not the only people in the room. They're not the only people in the room. There could be some lost people here this morning. There could be some people who have yet to surrender to the one baptism of Ephesians 4 and verse number 5. There could be some people here who've never heard this before. This may be their first time to hear it. We need to take advantage of the opportunities we have to teach the truth at all times. So this may give us a chance to plant some seeds. But secondly, a second reason why we need to talk about this from time to time is because this subject ties directly to our salvation. And I hope we can all agree that the most important topic in the Bible is salvation. Would you agree with that this morning? That's the most important topic in the Bible. If we miss that, then guess what? Anything we're studying in Revelation is just worthless. We got to get that right. Of all the things we could talk about from the pulpit, nothing is more important than the topic of salvation. And so this morning we've talked about a subject that deals directly with the most important subject in the Bible. And I hope that it has reassured the faith of those who have submitted to the one baptism. And I also hope it has convicted those who have yet to do so. And so if there's someone here this morning, you've yet to... Surrender yourself to the one baptism of Ephesians 4 and verse 5. You have an opportunity to do so right here and right now. And if we can help you with that, come to the front as we stand and we sing.